This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Coming up tonight on Bite Into It, we have Tim Singleton-Norton from Digital Rights Watch. Also, we were celebrating International Women's Day here and uh, in studio with me today is Laura Summers. Hello there. Lovely to see you. And we have Mr Dan Salmon. Hello. Hello. And uh, I'm Vanessa Toholka. Thanks for tuning in. So we thought that in news this week, we would cover the very topical releasing of several reports about the gender pay gap in Australia and in the world. Mm. Laura, what sort of reports have we found out there? Well, on in February, the... Um, uh, hmm. The words have I lost. (laughs) Good morning. Hello. The Workplace Gender Equality Agency Ah, released a report which is specifically about the gender pay cap statistics. And also we've seen one from PwC come out um, also just at the end of February. And they they have a number of very similar statistics and they're trying to unpack and dig into in various ways, like um, which industries women are getting paid less in and which states and, you know, around the country, like what's happening and paint that picture. Um, and yeah, as as, um, as as I'm sure you're aware, it's actually not that great still. We haven't m- improved much at all since last year. And in fact, um, Australia's rate of growth has slowed a little bit, which is a bit frustrating. Mm. Now, at this point, I should do a full disclosure thing, which is that I am employed by PwC. Mm. So I'm not really going to comment on their report, but... Um, The statistics across the board do speak for themselves and we'll have to tweet these out a little bit later. One of the things that I thought was interesting, you know, obviously we're an IT-focused program and uh, the financial services sector had the largest pay gap pay gap across industry sectors at 33.5%. But the third largest pay gap by industry sector was information, media and telecommunications at 23.5% gap. Of course, there are IT workers across all industry sectors and uh, knowledge workers, you mm. know, if we sort of define things a little bit more broadly as well, which is increasingly becoming very relevant to anyone with tech skills. Yeah, Absolutely. so there's there's definitely some challenges there. And what's great about this is that so much of the analysis has been role for role within mm-hmm. organisations so that it doesn't suffer from the, we're comparing apples and oranges, we're comparing, you know, teachers and engineers. It's actually role for role. Absolutely. And looking at um, experience level as well, like graduates versus like more senior people so that we can see like once you have gotten up that, um, that pay chain, are you actually being remunerated the same way? Mm. Um, and obviously, I think overall these stats are that Australia is sitting about 16%, but um, obviously it's pretty sad to see that in the higher earning industries in particular, at the back, that gap seems to really like widen out a bit more. Also that across the world, you know, Australia was making some headway compared Mm -hmm. to a lot of other countries, but our headway is really slown, slown down. And that's that's a shame. You'd want to reverse those trends, but we don't want to only focus on, you know, the the negative things that we're seeing. What's great about all of these reports is they're suggesting really um, pragmatic things that we can do to start to address these um, more strongly. Absolutely. And one of them actually has some really interesting figures about how 
actually addressing the gap in pay will increase that country's GDP significantly and like, you know, essentially make them more wealthy, which is a pretty important thing. And I'm sure that lots of economists and politicians could get behind that as a goal, even if it wasn't under the domain of diversity. But, you know, who doesn't want an extra couple of billion coming into the economy, right? Well, they're talking about, you know, if we solve this problem, that could be an 11% gain in GDP for Australia. That Mm. is huge. I can't think of another thing that we could modulate in the economy that would result in an 11% gain. It's just not that easy. Nothing else crosses industry sectors like this sort of issue. Yeah, exactly. It's not like we're going to suddenly have another coal, right? Like the coal boom. Yeah. There's, there's going to be another coal boom for Australia. So that seems like a, a pretty amazing win that we could would go for. So in terms of the potential changes that organisations can make to mm. address the gap, Laura, what were what's one suggestion that really jumps out at you? Well, look, I really like the idea of grooming women for leadership roles from an early age. So really like identifying some of the people who could potentially like grow into those spaces. And also, obviously, and like, you know, I'm going to give you two because I'm excited about this. Um, looking for ways both from the government and the corporate sector to really like improve that workplace flexibility and make it possible for women to continue their um, career growth beyond that age when they might have kids, because that really is the kicker for a lot of people um, is their ability to really grow into those like higher roles or those leadership roles if they do choose to have kids. And, you know, we know most most women do choose that. I think it's still around 80%. Um, so in the same vein as what you're describing, um, one of the suggestions is improving access to affordable and quality childcare. Yeah. Now, this affects, you know, parents equally. Unfortunately, though, the results of these surveys show that our model of full-time male workers and part-time female workers is actually the model that is allowing people to have children and support and, you know, decently care for those children at the moment. And that's partly because of the prohibitive cost of childcare. Now, if we can tweak that lever, then suddenly, you know, maybe we'll have more of the incidences of both parents winding back their hours a little bit. You know, I've definitely met a lot of people who've gone with that model and are trying Mm -hmm. to do that. But um, there's there's certainly still um, a concern about facing stigma in the workplace for doing that and more so from the male point of view and that's you mean a the, real the shame stigma of like of going part time part time to being to a, parenting yeah, yeah absolutely yeah it's well that speaks to the whole like you know daddy has got you know parenting duties or daddy's got babysitting duties and it's like wait if it's your child then you're looking after your child it isn't some kind of extra role that you've been given but yeah we certainly have a lot of social constructs to break down here um, and similarly, like this idea that two two employees could potentially be doing three quarters time or two thirds time, and you know still have a reasonably responsible role and take on a lot of work. Um, mm. But you know that's that's very rarely a model that we see happening simply because corporates just don't have the culture to accept that idea. Like it's just not a thing we talk about or a thing we've made space for. Actually, I think some of the corporates, because of their size, are the ones that are much better place to start to put these policies into mm. place because they have more employees to work with. Mm. Therefore, you know, more skill sets to juggle and to remix the mix of things, um, more options to uh, have flexible working hours. And 
I've, you know, I've seen a lot of businesses go and do this. You know, the banking sector is really starting to move this way and that's fantastic to mm. see. And they're definitely seeing benefits for their bottom line. For example, sometimes, you know, they might pay less in terms of real estate costs to house all these employees because they're not all in the office at the same time. There's yeah. a win. Yep, absolutely. And as we know in tech, like there's definitely this boom in this idea of working remotely or working, you know, like some of your hours that are contact hours in the office and some hours being taken away. And I think those kinds of um, job constructions should should hopefully become more and more um, familiar to us, even taking the childcare argument out of it, because honestly, it makes for more efficient and happier people, right? And happier people are better employees. So if we can stop thinking that this nine to five thing is the only way to work and it's really like not, and I think there's plenty of models out there to prove it's not. Well, it was wonderful when we were speaking to uh, Juan Roman from uh, NASA a couple of weeks ago, which mm. was thrilling at the best of times. Um, but he was also talking about how flexible hours uh, by allowing the NASA staff to be flexible. They said, you know, we only expect them to get the job done, but what we find is people go above and beyond because mm. as well as wanting to get the job done, they're happy in the times that they're getting it done and uh, it's working with their life and they're not stressing about things that they're missing out on yeah. or support for their family that they're not giving. And the people who are night owls can come in and work at night and he was saying like how at eight o'clock at night at NASA, it's like this dorm party and all these people are hanging about having a good time and like throwing ideas around. And I love the idea of seeing that happening at more workplaces and, you know, not seeing everyone scurry out the door at five because they're finally allowed to leave their desks, but having people like come yeah. in. I mean, I know- And I they're desperate to pick up their kids from childcare because they yes. get fined for every 15 minutes that they're late. Oh, isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you can understand the child carer's point of view. It's, you know, they're being paid so little. Um, mm. Shout out to any uh, child workers who are on strike today. No kidding. Yeah. I saw an article today on that topic of um, a lady who was saying that she was getting paid more to clean up after the childcare than for looking after the children during the day. So she was essentially doing two roles because she needed that extra income. And like, that's atrocious, right? Like, come on, we should be able to do better than that. Like, yeah. Looking I after children is hard. I think that's the, the, the general message we, we get from these reports is mm. like, it's fantastic that we're doing some navel gazing. Let's reflect on this. Let's mm. think about how we can do better. And day by day, let's get some little steps forward. Let's, you know, think about flexibility. Let's put ourselves in our colleagues' shoes and think mm. about the demands in their lives. Mm. And that a happy person makes a great employee. And one last thing is yeah. we can talk about it, right? Like we can mm. we can open up the conversation about how much we're earning and talk with our colleagues and, you know, maybe destigmatize the idea of talking about money a little bit more because mm. that doesn't cost anyone anything and it will really expose what's going on. It'd be great if it wasn't in most of our employee contracts that we're not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> We'd like to welcome into studio Tim Singleton-Norton. He's the chair of Digital Rights Watch, standing up for the digital rights of Australians. And to tell us more about it, he's here right now. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so digital privacy, fair access, democracy, freedom, these are the things that blast at me when I, when I uh, hit up your website, digitalrightswatch.org.au. But um, for a lot of our listeners, I'm sure that they don't really know what Digital Rights Watch is about. Could you give us a little bit of a rundown? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a it's a very new organisation. We've only been active for about a year. In fact, almost exactly a year today. Um, and it largely came out of conversations. I work in the non-profit sector for my day job. And there's been a lot of conversations happening in that sector around the invasion of privacy in a digital sphere. Um, and a lot of work happening, but not anything that was coordinated towards policy change, towards social change, towards government change. Um, so we had a series of workshops a year ago with a whole range of different players who were all sort of edging around in it um, and one of the things that came out of it was we needed a standalone organisation that would coordinate that. Awkward silence in the room as no one willing to put their hand up <laughs> and somehow it ended up being me. Um, and the Did other, everyone take a step back? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, it's him. <laughs> Um, but I've also got a great active board. So there's um, there's a board, we've got an advisory council and people started to coalesce around it when we started to have a bit more of a plan of what we were doing. Um, so that's where it, it came from. Um, and I think because of that grounding in the non-profit sector, a big part of what we tried to do is to not replace what's already there mm. and definitely not to try and start anything new. So we work very, very closely with the existing groups here in Australia, um, Electronic Frontiers Australia, uh, the Australian Privacy Foundation, Amnesty, those sort of people. Yes, I did notice your uh, privacy sticker on your laptop. Won't it probably? <laughs> Some of us don't have a branded cover of the camera on our laptops, but we still cover it anyway because, you know, you just can never be too you, sure. You can never be sure. A little yeah. bit of um, electrical tape does the trick. That's right. Um, so what is the mission of Digital Rights Watch? I think at its core, what we're trying to do is actually educate and empower citizens to understand what their digital rights are, how they're being infringed and what they can do about it. And does that extend to a lobbying role? Yes. Yeah, so one of the first things we did was reach out to um, the Parliamentary Friends of the Internet, which is quite adorable, um, but is actually quite a good little collection of MPs who've already identified this as an issue. So the Parliamentary Friends process is essentially, you know, a group of MPs care about a topic, they get together. It's usually cross-party. So in this case, it's ALP, Greens, Liberals, um, and they just talk with their representatives from the sector who want to get engaged in these issues and then they try and sort of help them in the political space. That was one of our very first steps. Um, and we've also been quite active with the Prime Minister's Office, the Foreign Office, um, the Minister for Communications, just trying to educate them around what are the privacy implications of what they're doing. Absolutely. Um, when, you, when you're talking about the uh, friends, the parliamentarian friends, I just had such a cute picture in my head of like a bunch of anime characters sitting around going, huh? <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm curious, is, um, is that something that's publicly sort of shared and do we know like who our friends are in the privacy space? Like, do we know which MPs are, or is that not something that we can... Um no, all of these are actually very open and mm. they have to be in terms of, you know, who's on them. I think one of the things is whether they're active or not. Mm. So you'll notice that there is a parliamentary friends of, um, of gender, it's very mm. active. Parliamentary friends against, I'm trying to remember what the other ones are, um, against landmines very active, those sort of things. Um, and then there are other ones that won't be so. I think you, you can identify those champions within Parliament. I mean, um, Senator Scott Ludlam, been one from the Greens, Tim Watts from the ALP. There's a few of those people who are really, they understand what we're talking about and they understand how to translate it into the Parliament as well. Mm. Which is an excellent skill we need to see more of, right? Because there's been many instances of the Australian government really failing to translate tech speak to human speak. Um, a couple instances pop into mind. The uh, metadata fund we had <laughs> about a year ago. Yeah, it was George Brandis. George Brandis, yeah. our friend, and um, um, obviously census fail as well was a was a big one that happened just recently. I think the, yeah. the, uh, the the digital transformation office shamozzle of the last eighteen months, I think, is probably mm. reasonably. 
yeah, high up on that list. Yeah, to give them their credit, actually, the Digital Transformation Office has reached out um, to a lot of us in the sector and just said, work with us, help us, advise us. Um, and that's, that's to their credit to actually that's understand when they're doing something not that great. That's fantastic <laughs> to hear. Mm. Yeah. So you've just released, uh, well, you're, you're getting ready to release an annual report for your first year of operation. Can yep. you give us a little bit of a, a sneak preview into what that might contain? Yeah, so I think it's um, it was we, we have to we have to put forward. Um, we're mm. a national charity registered mm. on the ACNC, so we have to actually put out an annual report. Mm-hmm. But I think the things that we were um, highlighting there was the impact that we've had with very little funding, with very little support, and in our first year. Um, so the main one there is actually you're right um, as you mentioned, um, responding to the census and the national census and the privacy concerns there. And I think that was an interesting case because there's a lot that went wrong there. There's a technological failure. Um, there's a PR disaster that happened as a result. But at its core, one of the things that we put forward was that it was a privacy invasion first up. And that thing that happened was some bean counter decided that it would be easier to infringe on privacy than to go the other way. Mm. So that's a big thing that we wanted to highlight about the way that we can actually insert ourselves into a national conversation but have a privacy lens to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side of the scale, it's our global work. So we are a partner of the Keep It On campaign, which is run, run largely by Access Now. Um, and that's to uh, combat against government invasions on uh, internet access, which doesn't happen here. We're a democracy. We have an open and free internet, mm. mostly. Um, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in the Central African Republic, those sort of places, you will get governments who will just ring up Google and say, there's some people we don't like over there, shut the internet down, and it happens. Mm. So that's great that we're in a good standing currently with our internet freedom. Uh, what about net neutrality? Do that issue sort of comes and goes quite predictably. Mm. Um, How is that looking at the moment? It's looking very shaky on the US side of things Mm. and that usually dictates the global response. So obviously there's a lot we could go into that's a problem with the Trump uh, legacy and what he will leave behind. But from our point of view, I think one of the big things is actually installing a head of the SEC who is against net neutrality and is a capitalist in all senses of the word Mm. and doesn't value individual privacy or access um, and the freedom to access. So it's very concerning. if any of our listeners don't know what net neutrality is right now, do you think that you could just give a quick synopsis of what that might look like if you were using the internet here and suddenly net neutrality came into play? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at its simple level, it's about... Um, or, sorry, net neutrality stopped being in play, I guess yes, is that's what true. I mean. Yes, yeah. we want net neutrality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the simple thing is whether or not you need to pay to access. So um, it is happening in some instances here in Australia. It's happening to our favour, which is why we're not against it. So the prime example there is um, iInet has a deal with iView, that you won't be metered for the amount of downloads you use on iView. That automatically favours iInet customers. Now, that's not such a much an issue, but if you had a deal between TPG and Netflix that meant that if you had TPG, Netflix would be faster, then you're benefiting one company over another mm-hmm. because people can afford to pay for a premium. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and that would be problematic. Mm. Um, as I understand it, it's not just necessarily um, services but also individual websites that could be affected. Like big corporates could pay a premium to have their content delivered faster yeah. and um, people who are just running a blog or just you know wanting to talk about the state of the world, suddenly their sites become slower and people find them harder to access, mm. um, which is, is form of bias, just you know, not quite as bad 
bad as turning it off at Google, but it's still bad. Yeah, and this is part of the debate around why you saw a lot of digital privacy advocates interested in the NBN debate. Um, rolling out internet as a, an access issue is important, but it's also important to make sure that access is level. That if you're in Bendigo or Wonthaggy, you can get NBN just as much as you can in Brunswick. And unfortunately, at a, at a really practical level, we know that that's already not completely equal access to the internet. We know that sometimes people move into apartment blocks where, for some reason, they can't get serviced by a certain provider. Therefore, their choice as consumers is really limited. So I'm just thinking that's an incredible breadth of, uh, of uh, things that you're trying to be across have you had to hunt for experts in, in different fields to help inform you as an organisation? Uh, yeah, so we have an advisory council that um, advises us um, and made up from a range of different areas. I think because of how we founded ourselves as a connector of existing services or existing movements, we've always reached out to others and tried to merge the bubbles of where we interact. So in the prime example was um, myself, uh, Am Amnesty, Action Aid, Human Rights Law Centre and The Guardian. We partnered to put on a panel at the Australian Council for International Development Conference, um, which is, no offence to them, usually quite a boring conference, <laughs> having worked in the aid and development sector for a decade or so um, myself. But the point there was that um, international aid and development organisations often go into developing nations and they provide infrastructure and they work with civil society and they work with activists and they unknowingly put them at risk because we're using digital technology that will identify them, that will um, notify governments of their activity. And there's a huge gap in the knowledge there because there's great work happening, but it could go really, really badly. Mm. So in that, we, we pull together a whole bunch of experts from across the field and we just put it out there and said, you know, we need to talk about this as a sector. As I said, my bias is I'm vested in it. I work for a development agency as my day job. But I really wanted to see that debate happen in that forum. Mm. And the only way to do that was if we brought a whole range of voices together. We're currently chatting with Tim Singleton-Norton, who's from Digital Rights Watch, a not-for-profit group who are standing up for the digital rights of Australians. They've also got a real role in you know, advocacy, awareness and um, even providing tools which, um, which we can learn from and, and use to protect our privacy. Um, so, Tim, we've spoken a little bit about your mission and uh, what you achieved in 2016. What's on the agenda for this year? I think... Um a lot of the continua continuation of last year. Um, I think the big thing that we're focusing on is making sure that governments aren't continuing to infringe on citizens' privacy through systems, be they inadvertent or, you know, accidental. Um, and speaking before about the census, I do believe that was an accidental invasion of privacy. It was an ill-advised idea that just blew right out of proportion. But there's also the deliberate um, mass surveillance of, of citizens. So we've had some big um, controversies around digital projects from government in the last year, definitely. Right over the holiday season, um, Centrelink started sending out notices to, to people um, saying that they owed money um, based on overpaid benefits. As, as those notices started being analysed and, and different people received them sometimes from years ago and sometimes recently and crunched the numbers and went, mm, I don't think that this is right, uh, it turned out that it seemed that there were some failures in how these debts were being calculated 
and that it was almost a bit of a preemptive, you know, uh, an opportunistic request of people and probably, you know, some checks that could have been there weren't there. From the point of view of your organisation, what sort of things that do you think that you can do to, to lobby um, the government to have a more considered approach to these sort of projects? Um, I think the Centrelink one's prime example actually of something where we didn't get involved because we didn't see it at its core as a digital rights infringement. Right. Um, it's obviously a privacy infringement. Mm. Um, and as you said, there's a tech failure that happened there. Um, and actually the recent case, uh, Andy Fox um, is actually a friend of mine, was talking about whether or not there's some value in us stepping in to support her there. Mm. We didn't see that. But I think what it does show is something that um, I've got a lot of friends who work in the tech industry who mm. talk about the process within the tech industry of software developers and data miners and people who are building this software um, is that their number one answer to corporates who ask them, well, how should we do this is suck up everything. Absolutely. Grab everything you possibly can on your consumer, even if you think it's completely irrelevant. Find out the colour of their auntie's dog. You know, find out which house they lived at 15 years ago. Just get everything because it might be useful in the future. And what we're worried about is that that's what governments are doing now as well. So that's, um, I've trained as a librarian and uh, as part of that training, uh, there's a fair bit of privacy training because say in the old days, it was really vital for a librarian not to ever share the borrowing records of any person mm. because um, that could lead to all sorts of um, abuse. And when we think about how those protections are enshrined in law. We actually do have privacy principles and uh, those have been reviewed in the last few years and they've changed slightly, but there's still um, a basic principle about not collecting more data than you need to get any particular task done. Um, but I'm not sure that that's, the, because I'm not a lawyer, I'm not actually sure that that's the sort of protection that is enough for a, a consumer to go and say, why are you asking for this information? Do you know a little bit more about that than I do? <laughs> it is it is a very technical issue. No, and I'm not a lawyer either, yeah, um, which yeah. is why I have three human rights lawyers on my board. Excellent. <laughs> so I go to them on these issues. But I think one thing that you're right, we do have the privacy um, principles. Um, they need severe updating into the digital sphere. Um, the other thing is that um, the digital world doesn't conform to a national border. Right. Um, and then the third thing is that um, corporations and the corporatization of data, they don't give a shit about our, about our privacy. So when you're talking about trying to get Facebook or Google or some of the big tech companies to respect privacy, they'll do it to the level of what their PR demands, but they won't be beholden to any national laws on it. They're increasingly starting to talk about responsibility and talking to various governments about that responsibility. Um, but I think it's just way behind the eight ball. We're, we're 10 to 15 years behind the conversation that we need to have. Do you think um, you can give us any examples of how those privacy principles haven't caught up to what's actually happening in the digital world right now? Like ways that we behave online or interactions that we might have that they're just, we don't have like a kind of discussion or like a, a framework for? I think it's the debate that people have in their own mind about what they're willing to hand over. Mm. So the thing that people always say to us is, well, when I look at the, the cost benefit analysis of signing up to Facebook, it's worth it. 
I'm, I'm happy to hand over my data in return for getting a great service because we've changed the transactional debate. We no longer hand over $5 a month. We hand over our personal data in this sort of bleeding fashion to Mark Zuckerberg. And that transaction is okay in most people's minds. Unfortunately, that seems like the exact sort of calculation that humans are terribly um, poorly equipped to make. It sounds a little bit like the nutrition debate where you go, oh, a little bit of bad now. You know, it's very hard to look at the long term and the impact of those, those tiny bites. I, yeah, I don't know. I wonder, um, does that mean then if where the bridge needs to happen, it's not just at the, the, um, the juridical level, it's also in consumers' minds. So do you have, um, as well as the advocacy angle, like how, how do you think you're going to go about the education aspect of... Uh, of your mission, I guess. Yeah, that's a big part of what we're going to do this um, this year uh, is actually ramp up our education resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of that is just making people aware of... It's not so much about what's being taken away from them, but what transaction they're taking part in. Because it's a, it's a willingness to understand what you're giving away. If you're willing to do that and you're fully aware, fine independent choice and we're willing to let you do that. That's your choice. Um, but I think on a lot of cases, it's people not really understanding what it is that they're passing over. Do you think there's a way to make it real and tangible to people, like not just individual sort of data transactions, as you say, but like the sum of the whole thing? Like, are you are you thinking of, you know, showing people like their Facebook history and their Google history and letting them really see like how much of themselves they've given away over time? Or, or are there other ideas of how you can tackle like making it kind of more meaningful? That's funny you should say that. I was actually talking um, in the lead up to the ACFID conference where we spoke and, and I was tempted to uh, grab one of the CEOs of the large organisation in the room and profile them digitally and then display it on screen. And then I realised I might get fired if I do that. (laughs) Um, But I think that sort of shock tactic might actually work to Mm. actually make people understand what it is. And at the moment, what we're talking about here is like individual choice of how you use platforms. But then the bigger question there is what does your government do on behalf of you? And even if you decide to live fully as a hermit and you don't engage in social media and you don't even have a phone and you wear a tinfoil hat on your head like you can do all those things um the australian government's signed up to the nsa and cia's snooping um, Mm. charter and they're just willingly giving everything over to that not only that the opportunity cost of not having a mobile i mean imagine having a job where you know you're you're employer couldn't contact you after hours these Mm. days it would be a very rare job where that was permissible you know there's the opt-out isn't actually there, so I think it's unreasonable to say, oh, you can opt out of this. And I think that's that's a really important message to send to our leaders when they're trading off our, our privacy. Mm. Mm. I've got a colleague of mine, um, Juan, who I, I think is a triple R listener, actually, and he doesn't have a mobile phone, doesn't have a personal email. But we hope he has a radio. <laughs> I'm hoping he's listening now. Um, well, somebody has to be the shining light for all of us. <laughs> Look, um, there's a lot, we've spoken a lot about how your organisation is working with government and lobbying government and then, you know, trying to help and educate us as consumers and as um, citizens. What, as a citizen, can we do to engage with what Digital Rights Watch are doing? 
I think it's um, get involved in the stuff that we're actually putting on, the various forums, um, some panel discussions. Um, uh, we spoke at the Next Wave Festival last year. We're trying to be a bit more diverse about how we're going about it to make sure we're well, not just a bunch of tech heads sitting in a room mm. um, because that has happened today. You get a lot of the same people getting together going, you know, I believe in digital rights. You too, really, that's great. <laughs> um, and so we're trying to reach out to new audiences. Um, but I think it's actually around, you know, we're trying to put together what we call the watch list, which is a researched uh, list of things that you should care about. So it's a very formulaic structure of what's the issue, um, what what has happened in the past, uh, what the ramifications of you could be and what you can do about it. And that's one of the things that we're trying to put there, educative resources so that people can be more aware. Mm. All right. And uh, will there be any sort of, you know, tell your grandma style campaigns that we might expect to see? Is, is that still a useful approach for these sort of issues? I hope so. But last time I talk, tried to talk to my grandma about it, she just uh, showed me a lot of cute cat videos that she'd found on the internet. Oh, which well, that's, that's oh, very, very excellent. Yeah. Yeah. She's online and that's the most yeah. important thing. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's great for mental health, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Singleton-Norton from Digital Rights Watch, thank you very much for sharing your mission with us tonight. Thank you. Um, Dan, Laura and Tim. Uh, Tim, we've invited him to stick around with us because, you know, this, it's just a, a welcoming kind of studio here. We and just kept chatting and we really didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but we thought that we'd cover a little bit of extra news from this week. And all over the front pages of the virtual newspapers um, were the news stories about WikiLeaks, talking about CIA hacking tools um, and talking about the hacks that are in place for various phones and TVs and Edward Snowden tweeted out his response to the latest WikiLeak leak and said that this looks like solid data and, uh, yeah, everything about it sort of speaks to its credibility. Mm. So that was pretty interesting. Um, Laura, do you have a Samsung television? I do not, but I also don't have a TV because I'm just weird like I that. was uh. thinking that, actually. I was thinking, mm. oh, so, f- you know, fewer and fewer of us have TVs these days, yeah. but yeah. that's not really a good enough defence. No. no, it's true. And I'm, I still have a laptop that can listen to me, even with my little EFF sticker. It can't see me, but it could still hear me for yep. sure. Yeah, definitely. Is, is anyone surprised about the extent to which the CIA has gone in these leaks? I'm assuming no one's surprised. I guess no. that's the thing, isn't it? Whenever it's, it's intelligence, it's, it's at a whole other level and you just think, I can't even get the government to not do data retention. Which they will admit to in public. Yeah, yeah that's, of course. Yeah. But it just feels like, oh, again, like yeah. what? when does it end? And it doesn't end. And I mean, there is a part of me that goes, of course they can, that's their job. You know, yeah. that, and I just hope that there's some rigorous procedures behind the scenes about mm. that. You would hope that someone's heart is in the right place when they're deciding mm. to delve into everyone's private data, but I mean... Well, who guards the guards, exactly. right? Like, there's no good answer. But, no. I mean, like, American defence has been traditionally, like, 10 to 15 years ahead of the actual, like, you know, corporate world and the public world in terms of their tech capabilities, probably for 50 or 60 years now. So, I'm not wildly surprised, but one thing, one point I do want to make um, here is that it is actually operating systems they're targeting, not the encryption between... So, if you're sending a message, say, from a phone to a laptop or, you know, between two devices. It's not that end-to-end encryption. It's not the the thing that's keeping it safe as it's on its way across the internet. It's like actually at the operating system yeah. level. Actually, Which is rendering um, the, the kind of purported... Uh, S- uh, signal and WhatsApp and the ones that actually say, hey, yeah. we are secure, you can't hack in. It's yeah. rendering their kind of business model completely useless because you can actually get into that. 
Mm. There's a, a great read on hackread.com about um, DNS-based malware and, um, you know, the attack known as DNS messenger attacks. So if you're really into the nitty-gritty of this sort of stuff, um, that's a good read hand-in-hand with the latest leaks. Mm. Um, we might tweet out that link later if we're not ravenous and rushing to dinner instead so it might be later later because that's what sometimes happens on the show if you've ever wondered why we tweet out the links so late it's because we're running to dinner <laughs> mm, i'm pretty starving i'll admit it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so lots of lots of security news this week i think what you were saying dan about the, the sort of like oh yeah that's what happens that's the problem mm. it's the apathy of those uh, people who are more aware and then the lack of awareness of the general public and that's what they're playing on that's what that's what makes this possible because so th- it will go away this is the thing the news about it will go away yeah. tomorrow yeah. People, yeah. there will be something else and people are just like yeah okay you're hacking into my data now so but. i thought an interesting corollary in terms of news that's out this week um or not even news just like tech life advice from innocuous lifestyle sites that I happened to stumble across and thought was a juxtaposition to this was that CNET had this article about um, seven devices every Airbnb host should put in their house. And you could pretty much put the word smart in front of every regular little house thing and that's what they're talking about. Smart locks, smart doorbells, smart thermostats, smart lights, you know, media streamers, security cameras, chargers, those sort of things. They were really stretching at the end. You know, mm-hmm. Just like, we want to make this a list of seven. Let's throw in chargers there. Every guest wants those. A realistical needs to be an odd number. <laughs> it's just, and from a designer's mouth, mm. Laura, I you know. know. I, oh, I've never written this kind of content, I promise. <laughs> But um, I thought that it was kind of cute that someone commented under the article um, that SMART is an acronym for Software Makes Anything a Ransomware Target. And (laughs) yes, as sweet as it is to have smart locks to our Airbnb apartments, which we don't have, which would be negative geared, which Mm. we don't have (laughs) because we're not boomers, um, (laughs) that you could control from your phone and let people in theoretically and then lock them out after their stay was up and what have you. Yes, it, it does make your place then vulnerable to, to attacks. Absolutely. But don't even go to the, 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 the attack side of it. It's also about an invasion or the commodification of the privacy of your tenants. Mm. And that's why I have a big problem with Airbnb, although I use it all the time, <laughs> um, is that idea of, you know, you've got people who, who own property and then they're trying to commodify it. When you insert smart technology into it, they're controlling the people who are within it. As you say, like, you know, maybe you actually decide you want to decrease the costs of your place. So you just bump it down every five degrees overnight and the person in that room suddenly puts it back up and then it goes back down again and it goes back up Mm. and what about that person's individual privacy to control the environment that they paid for oh particularly when you're looking at the suggestion for security cameras inside your place it's like hmm i can see some problems yeah Mm. yeah yeah absolutely and i i'm i'm sort of torn on this idea of smart homes in general because I love the idea of being able to control everything from my phone but then I'm petrified about the idea of being able to control everything from my phone because then someone can hack my phone and have my house. Mm. You know what this makes me think of is um, having your first car and going, look, it's really basic and as long as it gets me somewhere, that's fine. And then you you have a friend who's got a slightly better car than you and you're impressed by the electric windows and the electric mirrors. And then they're like, no, no, they're really expensive to fix. I can't open my windows. You know, and you think, hmm, maybe digitising everything is not mm. the best way always. And particularly with Internet of Things, things they are certainly some of the most vulnerable um, in terms of the security mm. and the encryption available because they're tiny, tiny little hard drives and tiny, tiny little processing chips. So that's that. And certainly because they're trying to 
bring the margins down and make them super cheap, they just can't spend a lot of time thinking about the security concerns. Mm, definitely. I, I do have hope for the next generation. I have a seven-year-old um, son and uh, he's learnt, starting to learn coding at primary school, which is great. Wonderful. Um, but it also means he now knows how to turn off the automatic blocks that turn his iPod off at, uh, at bedtime. <laughs> um, uh, he thinks he's hacking it. He's just figured out how to put it in airplane mode. Oh, that is wonderful. But it's great. And I'm sitting there going, damn you. I mean, it's great. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when you can't laugh at something naughty that they do. Yeah. yeah. Must be good parent. And yet, I love the way you're thinking, child. I should stop <laughs> teaching him about human rights. Yeah. <laughs> Created swearing. <laughs> That's wonderful. Actually, um, I was in conversation with Linda Lucas, the Finnish programmer, last night, and um, I loved her thoughts on how you can teach computational thinking without having screen time necessarily. She had all these creative ways of um, having workshops and play concepts that actually introduced, uh, yeah, like loop, the concept of a loop or... Yeah, programming <laughs> yeah. logic. Wonderful. Yeah, amazing. Wonderful stuff. Um, talking of programming logic, we should probably send a shout out to the event coming up. Um, and I think about, um, that's almost two months time away, but there's the Melbourne Data Science Week, the 29th to the 29th of May to the 1st of June. And it's for all you budding data science um, scientists out there who want to learn about deep learning, forecasting, predictive analytics. Oh, you're so employable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Those people are so employable. Mm -hmm. As, as um, Tim was saying earlier, all the big corporates are hanging out for people. I mean, all the big corporates have all the data that they don't know what to deal with so they're hanging out for people to tell them like something meaningful from this big mash of information mm. Mm. I love that one of their bullet points about uh, their tutorials just says shiny shiny and <laughs> markdown well I, I wasn't sure if that was a library or a programming language or just it's cool so <laughs> I wasn't going to go there at that point I went oh no I'm out of touch already oh, I've no. got to read up again well there is actually a programming language called rust which is the opposite of shiny so maybe shiny is just a programming language I was just thinking it's the slang from Firefly. Well, that too. Yeah, yeah. very <laughs> nice. Shiny. I'm totally there with yeah. you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, some of those tutorials uh, look amazing. Things on visualisation and deep learning and forecasting and predictive analytics. Mm. And, and they have an internship program and they have a currently an early word discount. So if you're interested, you can get your ticket for a bit less. Um, so, yeah, some really cool stuff. And, hey, you don't have to go out there and do deep learning for evil. You can do it for good. So go and be that person, right? Yeah, read up on your digital rights watch and take those ethics to the table. Exactly. Um, they've also got an event called Data Dames for Women in Data. It's their next event at lunchtime on March the 27th. There are just a handful of spots left for this. So do sign up on their meetup group. So go to Data Science melbourne.com and uh, check out the links there this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au